Greetings, fellow brutes, and welcome to another episode of the Brute Noise podcast. Today, I'm talking to Christel Vassus, who's been on the show twice before, to talk about a very exciting new find. We're talking about the oldest datable runestone yet, found in Svingerud in Hule, which is in Viken County, East Norway, and has subsequently been dubbed the Svingerud Stone which is technically speaking one of two runestones uh, recovered from the site, and both very exciting. The find was only revealed a couple of days ago, and Christer just got home from Oslo to give us the inside scoop. So without further ado, my name is Erik Storsen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future. This is the oldest runestone yet. Vassus, welcome back to the show. You've been here twice before, I think. Uh, initially on one of the very first episodes, and uh, and then some other other stuff. The unspeakable cults of Gothiskansa was the second episode, I believe. Very interesting archaeological material that you had to uh, present to us back then. Well, welcome back. Uh, you're here Thank to you. uh, discuss something that is uh, certainly not less interesting than the stuff that you've been presenting earlier. And we are, of course, talking about the exciting new runestone that was discovered in East Norway that you're working on. You just came back from Oslo, correct? This is correct. Uh, We we went public with a find on Tuesday this week. So that's, what, three days ago. Um, And I was in Oslo at the time. I live in Denmark at the moment. And so I I went to Oslo, a meeting with the... The archaeologists and the renologists and everyone working on the project um, and meetings with the press and so on. Very exciting. And it was actually also the first time I actually got to hold the stone in my hand, uh, which was very exciting, of course. I'm sure there are very few people who have not heard of this find by now yeah. because it's been making the rounds through all of you know the media channels and it's yeah. gone viral multiple times over, I think. In a nutshell, what what are we talking about here? We're talking about the oldest datable runestone uh, so far, and, yes. but also significantly uh, older than a lot of the other material we have, possibly. Yes. So when it comes to dating runestones, you can't really date a stone. Uh, well, you could try and date the language by saying, well, it's, it's the Viking Age Norse or it's Proto-Norse. Uh, but other than that, it is very difficult to uh, to find criteria which you can use to date it just from the rocks and the runes themselves. Um, so when we find runestones, um, and in particularly in this case, when we found this runestone and the the uh, the context which we found it in was intact, undisturbed. We had suddenly means of dating it on basis of, uh, well, this was a runestone found in, well, on top of or slash in a grave. Uh, and it hasn't been disturbed since the the charcoal underneath it was burnt. And 
um, there there were layers on the top. So, uh, w- which means that there was nothing visible above the ground. The only reason why the archaeologists found the uh, the grave was because it was very close to a grave mouth that they had to excavate because of uh, construction works later on. Um, and so when when we found these, well, the archaeologists found these graves uh, with artifacts and um, charcoal, burnt charcoal, in addition to remains of a skeleton. And these are three different means of dating. Um, so you can date artifacts by topology, and you can date charcoal by uh, C14. Um, and when it comes to skeletal remains, you can also date that. Um, it's yeah, slightly a bit, a bit of a different story than uh, than charcoal, but also C14 and C13 as well. Uh, and the datings altogether are in fairly uh, a large span between year 25 to year 250 AD. Um, but that, of course, is you know the biggest span, um, and there are indications that. Well, the skeleton looks like it's from the first century. Oh, yeah, first century AD. So between 25 and 120 somewhere. Uh, and if we were to assume that the, the runestone was placed on the grave at the same time as the burial took place, well, then it would be the oldest runic inscription we have, in fact. But it's certainly the, uh, under any circumstances, although, you know, it might, might be up to 250. So it still might be not the earliest runic inscription, but then in any case, it would be the earliest datable runestone. Yeah. So that is very, very exciting in itself. Yeah, so... <clears throat> That's because that's one of the interesting parts here. That even if it's like the very latest, the year like two hundred and fifty AD, yeah, um, that's still like, I mean, the oldest rune stone next to that. That, as far as we can tell, is presumably the Anang stone, uh, which yes. is still in its original place, and that's third century. For, well, yes, yes, but again, it's difficult to. Well, yeah, it's difficult to date, but we, exactly, yeah, we, yeah. we think it's from the three hundreds, right? You know, it's yes, like which is something like yeah. which is which we used to think of as like unbelievably old, you know, for yeah. for a runestone. So yeah. all of this is extremely exciting. It's just, um, and, and I mean, like there are so many different dimensions to this site. First of all, of course, that it's um, it's such a, a miracle that uh, first of all, there's a, a runestone in a grave, which is not usual yes. at all. Like not like the later Viking age where people are erecting memorial monuments, but they're not necessarily yeah. in the burial, you know. No. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and 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 just like runes in graves are just kind of a rare thing, generally speaking, especially like in this period. Yeah. Um. <laughs> completely unheard of, in fact. Uh, since we're talking, we're talking about the dates here. Um, and then that it's datable according to many different criteria. You know, yes. it's It's insane. extraordinary. I've been keeping this secret for over a year now, and you have no idea how frustrating it has been not to be able to talk to you about this. <laughs> <laughs> and many times just, I'm looking so much forward to 
telling Eric about this and the whole process because first they found this uh, this stone which is we call it the bigger stone um but it's you know it's still small I could carry it hold it in my hands it's very small uh, a tiny slab of um, of a rock but after several months the archaeologists contacted contacted us and said they had found another one. Uh, so two stones from the same fields, uh, well, from the same grave area. Incredible. I, 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 I'm so excited. I struggle to find the right words in English sometimes. No, I completely, uh, yeah, I'm struggling to, to phrase myself here uh, yeah. as well. The, the interesting implications here are, of course, that um, I don't know what the current consensus is about like the uh, emergence of runic writing. Um, but, uh, I mean, if I had to guess like where runic writing say first emerged, I would not say, you know, East Norway, I would probably presume that it was somewhere closer to the, uh, you know, closer to the Mediterranean, more at least like central, you know, continental Germanic territories. Yeah. Of course, you know, at this point in time, there's a lot of stuff going on there with like migrations and ethnic questions in terms of like, what's, you know what languages are these people speaking in Central Europe and uh, at which different times and how stable is it in one area yeah. uh, from one century to another. Um, but, but the odd implication here, and of course, you know, um, I'm curious to, um, to hear your thoughts about this. It does almost imply that, um, that, uh, that runic writing was being used in similar ways um, in other places earlier than this. Absolutely. Because it's kind of, you know, in, in the backwaters, so to speak. Yes. Uh, so we still have no means of telling where and when the uh, runic script was invented. Um, we have these indications that by, uh, well, up until now, we, we know, knew that by 160 AD, it was an established system of writing. Um, and from then on, we have the Elder Hutharth. But who made it? How was it used? Where did they make it? Difficult to say. But what is interesting here is that oh, we have about 30-something stones or runic stones from the Elder Futhark in Norway. Um, and that's the biggest amount of runic stones of the Elder Futhark anywhere. Uh, so the indication here, or this find, uh, just underscores the fact that it seems that the tradition of raising rune stones started off in in northern Scandinavia, in the parts of Scandinavia that now is called Norway. Um, but we don't have any particular good reason to say it was invented in Norway. That we can't really say that for sure. But certainly, this this stones. Even these stones uh, will tell us, yeah, the story of uh, an early tradition, so to say, um, an established tradition, because these runes are the same runes that we see later on. Some interesting and, uh, variant forms, though, with the B, like the the B looks mm -hmm. very interesting, and the S's are the same way. They have uh, four zigzags, um very very peculiar looking and also when it comes to the the g rune so the eighth rune in the what we 
gone public and t- said is likely a personal name. Uh, Idiberog is what the rune says, but the G it sort of tilts in a way that you could argue it's an N rune as well, uh, which means it would be Idiberon, um, which would make us force well would force us to make us uh, think of other uh, interpretations than if it would be Idiberon. Um, so it, it's all very interesting. And the amount of runes on this stone is incredible because it's, it's not one inscription. Uh, it, it, it's difficult to say, uh, to be honest, how many inscriptions there are, uh, but it looks like it might be, well, there are at least three, if not four inscriptions. Um, one of them is on the side of the stone, so I can't remember how thick in centimeters it would be, but a couple of inches thick. Um, and on the side of the stone, there's a long inscription with mostly consonants, which is quite annoying because it means that it's very difficult to interpret. Uh, I'm not sure we'll be able to interpret it uh, without forcing our own ideas of what this says in a way that you know, makes it not really a good interpretation. To it, it's easy to to revert to the incantation angle, right? You know exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but there are other inscriptions on the front side, um, and they are made with very. When we think of rune stones, we think of um, carve carvings that you know seems like someone has been hammering for a good while to make thick uh, runes uh, with deep incisions. These incisions are very shallow, made with, I yeah, could probably presume it would be a knife or maybe a needle even, because they're so tiny. Some of them are a bit thicker and more resolute, so to say, mm. than others. Uh, Idibero being the ones with the most powerful incisions. Um, and our uh, our guy who's going to work with the scanning of it, all, uh, he says that he's hoping uh, we can tell whether it was a blunt tool or it was a sharp angle on the tool. Mm. So that's, those details might come later on, but um, for now... We uh, all we can say is that they're very shallow and thin, and made in a weak, uh, weak way, which which is also yeah. They feel kind of yeah. They like I I remember Crystal Zilmer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, your colleague, yeah. uh, was pointing out uh, in some of the articles and interviews that you know uh, they give sometimes the impression of being kind of practice. Yes, runes absolutely. or like or like that they're you know sometimes they are a little crisscross somebody was playing around yes with with writing here and yes. uh, um am i misremembering or is there like a possible indication that this might there's uh the f rune u and then the thorn the th- yes uh, and that might be actually like the first first expression of like the abc like futhark yeah first futhark inscription in the world as well which is 
quite insane. <laughs> it is very because yeah. uh, that really exciting. does point to an established tradition, doesn't it? Like that. It does. This, yeah. Uh, it really does indicate that, well, the the order of the proof arc was established already at this point. Uh, but it is, as you point out, incredibly interesting that it looks so much like someone's been practicing their writing skills or imitating another person's writing. Um, and there are so many zigzags and other lines on the stone that it makes, whenever you look at a rune and say, oh, maybe it's not that rune, maybe it's the other one, but then you all discover, well, okay, well, this line goes in a long line all across the zone. Does it, is it a part of that? I mean, sometimes it's very, very difficult to tell which of these signs are part of the runes and which are just lines made, made by maybe maybe someone who's bored of learning the fruit arc. Uh, maybe it, it is very difficult to say what's been going on here. Uh, but certainly very, very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, though, with uh, the, um, uh, the differences between like what we imagine a runestone looks like. We often tend to think of them as yeah. these very well-planned-out sort of things. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the like actual you know, runic material is uh, has a much more organic feel to mm -hmm. it. You know, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it looks a lot more janky to our eyes who are used yes. to... We're used to uniform letters and straight lines and stuff like that. And, you know, yeah. that's not, these people did not really have a concept of that sort of thing. I've seen some really interesting takes uh, from lay people asking about like some of the peculiar forms, like the, the B that almost looked like a double B. Mm. And they're asking if this could be like a double consonant, which of course the concept of a double consonant does not exist to these no. people. Like there's no, no, there's nothing to compare it with. No. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how our interpretations and and the way that we look at runes is ultimately um, so died by our own literacy, mm -hmm. you know, and we, we're not we're not seeing it from the oral culture that this yeah. was, and and therefore also kind of missing the point and you know, uh, for lack of a better term, how magical the runes really were. Like the the magic mm -hmm. is really like in the fact that it is a writing system in the first place, and that you're able to record a message in yeah. a society where everything is ephemeral and everything has to be remembered and recalled and yeah. repeated. Yes, um, I mean, it, 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 the, the very fact that we have runes is incredible because I can imagine, um, a bit like you can imagine the Germanic people being a bit like um, the old generation when we first got cell phones. No, that's that's some new, it's a bit, decadence of the, of our culture we start using cell phones all over and so on you know uh, how old people always are um conservative and don't well, sort of reject the new stuff you can imagine uh, the the concept of writing must have been somewhat similarly received by by some people in the germanic tribes but in the end i mean we uh, we got a new script clearly inspired by uh, the friends of the South that they loved to hate. Mm -hmm, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but they made it their own. And it's, yeah, it's, it's an incredible script with so many 
uh, interesting features and of course uh, the gateway of having written sources of our earliest uh, stages of written language it's super exciting it's a it's a probably good uh a good time to also mention of course that this is uh well it it looks like this is also not the earliest um example of germanic language uh mm. Yes. In, in written form. It is yeah. the first example of runic writing. That's important yes. to, to state. Yes. Uh, because we have um, we have one example uh, from, I think, the 3rd century BC. Um, well, the, the dating can be a bit confusing because the helmets are... Uh, helmets are older. Yeah, the helmets yeah. are older. But the uh, uh, I think they were able to date the um, the context as well. But they were found. They were found in a, an area where they didn't use C fourteen, right? I can't recall. Yeah, that. yeah, I, I think so. It's, it's quite. A, yeah, I don't remember exactly when it was found either. Like they. Yeah. We're talking about the Nigao helmets, where it says Hari Kasti Teiwa, which is generally held to be the eldest rune or eldest Germanic uh, inscription. Hari Kasti being uh, a personal name. Uh, okay, well, it would be in Proto Norse, it would be Harigasti with a G. Uh, it's spelled with a K in these mm. in the Nigel helmet. And Tewa uh, would be, um, and yeah, it would be the name of the god Tewas in uh, one of their dramatic, uh, grammatical forms. Mm. Yeah, very fascinating. Uh... So of course, um, Germanic people have uh, have had contact with people who did use writing uh, mm. and were clearly inspired by it and, and looked to these and saw it uh, as some point of prestige uh, to imitate and um, and probably came in many different forms of experimentation. I mean, we yeah. have uh, we have both runes and rune-like symbols, as mm. uh, runologists sometimes call it. You know where. Uh, the inscriptions are seemingly nonsense. They're clearly made to give the impression that somebody is writing runes. Yeah. Um, when, uh, as far as we can tell, at least, uh, there's no semantic content behind them. It's more like the expression, kind of like yeah. asemic writing. You know, some people, that's yep. like an art form in itself where people yep. write, yep. deliberately write uh, in ways that have no semantic content. It's more about the visually striking kind of connotation. Mm -hmm. Um, and and we of course have uh, examples of that on this stone as well, with all its lines and uh, yeah, the Im impression of someone imitating. There's an example of there are two examples of the the fifteenth rune. So the the one we used to say is something between the z sound and the um, old noise r sound. Yeah. Some maybe <laughs> possibly pronounced like r or z. Uh, yeah, we yeah. don't we don't quite know, but there are two examples of this room. Um, one of them is the normal looking one, but the other one is upside down. Uh, mm. And that's 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 one one of course the um, what is often called the you know uh, in uh, in popular terms often referred to as algir or algis. Yes, yes, yeah, algis. <laughs> or something <laughs> something yeah, like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but of course the the very implication 
Okay, so maybe, let me rephrase this. We have now found a very tiny stone uh, with very shallow marks on them. In fact, it wasn't the archaeologists didn't discover that there were runes on this stone before they came indoors and had the lights, the artificial lights, and could see the markings then. So when they were out in the field, they didn't notice. It was just a stone, uh, a particular kind of, you know, it was placed in a way that made it special, so that's why they brought it back. Um, but the point being is that, well, they, they didn't notice. And let's play with the idea that this represents um, a tradition of how they made runestones in the uh, earliest days. Short, shallow incisions in the, in the forms of the runes, small stones placed in graves. If, uh, if archaeologists have been digging graves with these kinds of stones without properly going through with the lights and you know checking all the small stones, they might have missed other runestones. And the potential is that we have plenty of runestones like this, but never discovered. Um, and this, the grave as well, this kind of grave is we sort of, well, called a flat grave in Norwegian. I don't know if that's an English term as well. But what that means is that there's no sign above the soil or the earth that shows or indicates that there would be a grave here. So they actually had to dig in the, well, the grave mound next to it to be able to discover, okay, so there's, there's under the soil, there's marks of another grave here. Um, so that, that there's a potential here. I'm not saying that this is for sure. I'm just playing with the idea we might have tons of runestones like this, but with the, with normal dim lights, this was found in the, in the autumn. So uh, at the end of the day as well. So they didn't really have the, perfect lighting conditions but even even then looking at the stones when i when i look at the stone i i, I would have thought that if i came across it in the field i wouldn't have noticed that they had runes which the archaeologists didn't it's yeah well the implication here like uh, if we can call it that is uh pretty extreme because uh think about all of the burials from this time period that have been excavated mm -hmm. in the 1800s early 1900s oh, yes. yeah. uh, with very uh lacking methodologies yes. um not access to say like <laughs> uh, garden hoses even to just you mm -hmm. know clean stuff with properly or whatever in the field or you know in all sorts of conditions and then probably not even looking for runestones either like having exactly. no you know suspicion yeah. Uh, and then, you know, just putting the stones back in place and then calling it a day, uh, never to be looked at again. Precisely. So uh, there, this might be the top of the iceberg, really. It might be. It might also be a very special and particular case of something unique. So there's a, the whole span is possible here from one single unique case to something that we well from now on of course all excavators will be uh, thinking about this when <laughs> next time they're gonna excavate something they'll they'll uh, 
double check all stones presumably <laughs> yeah i mean like um i remember taking uh um taking one of crystal's uh courses when she was at the university of bergen mm-hmm. um and uh and uh you know just uh talking about how uh you know what what a what a resource say laser scanning is uh, in mm-hmm. terms of discovering uh discovering runes because runes are really imperceptible like if you've been even to stave churches you know if you don't really like you know you have to look really close to sometimes find these and they're cut into wood too so it's kind of like you know maybe against the grain and stuff like that so it's it's not that hard to see when you see it but it's easy to overlook that's the thing you know so yeah I mean, I've I've also been very curious about like, and I'm I'm not the only one. A lot of people are very curious about uh, the contents of the grave in terms of artifacts and stuff like that. Mm. If the if the if the dead can be sexed in a certain way and things like that. Uh, of course, I'm I'm sure a lot of this will come to light in the coming months as uh, as things are revealed. Um, but uh, yeah, that was one of the first things I started thinking about is like, what sort of um, what artifacts are there uh, to kind of determine the dates, yeah. uh, but also, yeah, to establish the identity perhaps of the person inside the grave, if mm. if that is possible at all. Um, um, well, in the um, in the flat grave, there's a Roman Augen fibula, which can be dated to uh, one of the between one and well, year one and four hundreds, if I'm not mistaken. Um, in the other graves, there are, let's see, there are pieces of a comb, a hair needle, a spindle, um, and I'm, I think there was a spur as well. So uh, the, the kind of spur you would put on your heel to uh, to put in to your horse. when you To ride a horse, it. yeah, interesting. Yes. Um, so in terms of that, you could maybe say statistic statistically some of these would be viewed as you know, female items, but we don't have a. Um, I, as far as I can remember, remember I think you did. Um, who was the leader of the excavations said that we couldn't conclusively say one or the other when it comes to uh, sexing. Um, the graves, mm. but there are uh, there are uh, skeletal remains that possibly could give us uh, some more information about that, and it, that's a working process. So uh, all of this is a working process. So whatever I'm telling here today might be rendered somewhat later on. Uh, anything from a reading of the runes to uh, to smaller details about yeah what have you grave goods and uh, yeah it's all inconclusive so far yeah uh, in many ways some things are more certain than others of course Uh, the datings are pretty they're they're rock solid so to say Um, but um, but yeah we they'll release um, excavation reports we'll have our articles ready Hopefully not too long, um, and the reason why we we've spent so long is because the the excavation has been ongoing, um, 
and well, in combination with the fact that the runes are actually in many cases very very difficult to read because of all the lines and marks and shallow incisions. Um, but but in due time, you'll um, you'll get plenty of more information about it. But uh, um, yeah, when it comes to gendering or sexing, <laughs> it's very difficult. Uh, yeah, it's it's always difficult in archaeological contexts to do this, yeah. you know, as as yeah. as a lot of different cases have demonstrated over the years. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's um, but very interesting though, because uh, I like many other people probably uh, have, you know, I've caught myself uh, having these kind of like constructing in my mind's eye uh, some opinions or like maybe uh, you know wishes about yeah. <laughs> uh, this burial and stuff like that and and some some of it i just realized of course is not as well f uh, founded as as others because of course um what 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 struck me is this apparent you know what might be a female personal name mm. and that just reminds me that there is there is a kind of an in the long term perspective with runes there's a connection between runes and women not necessarily like like women especially but Runes and women do go together yeah. uh, throughout the entirety of of their use, uh, which is not you know we often think of runes as this kind of like uh, pursuit of the of the uh, male aristocracy maybe in yeah. in the Iron Age or something like yeah. that. There are so many brooches with female names written into them. Uh, in the Viking Age, you have a lot of um, artifacts associated with the female sphere that have runes on them. Yeah. Uh, Clearly, women were also participants in this uh, kind of runic milieu. Yes. Um, of course, many of the artifacts that we um, that has survived the uh, the ages are the types that, well, they don't rot. So we don't have all the sticks. I mean, we we presume that runes were invented to use mainly on wood, but most of the wood is. You know disappeared but the the things that last almost forever at least far enough for us to discover them are um, metal some sorts of metal uh, that don't corrode that easily so um, in particular we're talking here the uh, the uh, well fibula brushes um, sort of jewelry types uh, in addition to to some weaponry, so we we both have something we usually associate with the male sphere weaponry, and then the uh, jewelry often so associated with the uh, female sphere. And as you point out, there are many cases of uh, of female names on on these artifacts. Several of these artifacts. Some scholars have argued that. These, by the looks of it, female names might have um, West Germanic uh, grammar, which would make it, although it looks like feminine endings in uh, Scandinavian terms, it might be masculine endings in uh, West Germanic language. Oh, but, really? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting. But, but I'm to point out. I, then my question would be: What are all these West Germanic men doing in Scandinavia? 
that's my question. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. When especially when it comes to uh, jewelry like brooches with uh, uh, runic inscriptions on them, uh, maybe with uh, uh, female names. What immediately strikes me is courtship gifts and stuff like that. Mm. Of course, I mean, like that kind of goes out the window here. Nobody's giving somebody a rune stone. <laughs> like <laughs> here's, a, here's nope. a slab of rock with your name on it. Uh, but uh, it's not just in like the same, uh, not in the courtship kind of uh, event. No, that's no. for sure. But uh, yeah, it's and and this is of course this is a tangent that has nothing to do with this um, burial. But it did remind me a little bit of of this uh, that uh, that uh, we see some we see some of this in the Viking Age as well, where um, and uh, this is something that I started thinking about because of the the age of the individual in the grave. It was uh, mm. a young adult or something like that. Yes, relatively young. Um, yeah, um, women. Like, okay, so notoriously, for instance, children are kind of absent from our archaeological record, for instance, when it comes to, like, uh, remains. It could be all sorts of osteological reasons for this, but I guess, um, or the way that they were, like, the way that they were buried or something, some, somehow eludes us. Um, but uh, it seems to me that that uh, women who are kind of in, in the courtship phase, they get different treatments and kind of interesting treatments mm -hmm. when they die, you know, prematurely. Uh, we see this, for instance, in the Viking Age. There's a very interesting complex in Sweden uh, where women who die between, like, I don't know, like 15 years of age up until, like, their early 20s, they receive a very particular sort of burial style, like, in certain, mm. certain parts of Sweden and stuff like that. And, you know, that's kind of what strikes me, too, with some of these, you know, when you have artifacts with female names on them, presumably if that's what they are, you know, it's like if there's some sort of continuity there. But, I mean, this is completely in the realm of speculation on my end. And of course, we like speculations. Yeah. yeah. Good ideas often yeah. spring out from speculations. Yeah. But of course there's nothing here like concretely to, to really point in that direction. We all know that there's a presumably a female name and that this yeah. person was young. It may or not, may not be the same person even it could be completely exactly. incidental. Yeah. So uh, there, there are many ifs here uh, and there are many, possible interpretations of this possible personal name, possible even family name might be. Um, so um, we'll present all the ideas in our forthcoming article. Wonderful. Do you have any idea when uh, something like that might be published? I mean, the mills of academia do grind <laughs> very slowly. so They do. But in this case, I think uh, journals wouldn't be uh, difficult to persuade. Uh, when it comes to uh, publishing a bit sooner rather than later. Uh, so uh, hopefully in not too many moods. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you want to highlight or talk about with this? Or or do you want to yes. talk about some of your personal projects besides this? My personal projects besides this? Well, well when it comes to personal projects, I, uh, I have more secrets. Um, more secrets I, okay <laughs> so you've uh, i've let you in on one of the secrets now it's been uh, it's gone out but uh, there's going to be i can i can give you a bit of a teaser uh, there's going to be um a very interesting runic find uh published in well at least we'll let the world know in the beginning of March. It's going to be crazy. 
and it's got nothing to do. It's not even from Norway. It's from Denmark. Um, and it will be very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm quite sure it will get the same amount of attention as this line. So the uh, comparable in a way to the, the sensation of the Svingero stone will be our next next project as well. This has become a tradition now. You come on the <laughs> podcast and you drop uh, hot esoteric news, uh, th- things that have not even broken yet. Yeah, so this, That's crazy. This is, the, uh, this is the advantage of having showed that you can keep secrets um, because then other scholars will tell you their secrets and uh, maybe sometimes even bring you somewhat on board uh, with their wild new discoveries. Um, but yet, you, in general terms, I can tell you that you have a lot to look forward to. Uh, but most of it is not going to be by my hand. But uh, there are several wild things coming up uh, within the next couple of years. What about you, Kisto? Uh, yeah. You're writing your, you're finishing your PhD these days, right? I am. I am. So um, I have a month and a few days more to do that. Um, which coincides perfectly with the next project. So two days after um, after I'm supposed to be done, and I'm uh, underscoring supposed to be done with my PhD, uh, then um, we uh, we will go public with this next project, and uh, hopefully it'll go very quickly before we well until we've uh, between. Tell the world and the actual publication. Uh, it's also going to be a very, a very long runic uh, description of a rather long inscription. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it sounds like uh, these are hectic days for you. Then, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, like the the, uh, the it, last last month and a half of a PhD project. That sounds uh, pretty hellish. It's, it's not fun, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I it, because I have the other things to look forward to. I um, I get by. Yeah. But uh, what's your project about? You kind of downplaying it before we start recording. My PhD project. Yeah, uh, it is a um, onomastic project. I'm uh, my 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 main field of research is of course studying names, uh, place names in particular. Uh, which is also a reason why I got pulled into uh, runology is because you know, many of the runic inscriptions contain names. And so, uh, well, sometimes I've been asked to have opinions about names in runic inscription and from there found my, my way into uh, runology, which is quite fun. But when it comes to my PhD project, it is a... Um, a very big project about um, contact linguistics and contact onomastics. So the effect of contact and distribution of various types of place names in, well, my, my I started off with saying uh, around the sea of Skagerrak, uh, which means southern Norway, southern western Sweden, and northern Denmark. Then I expanded to saying, well, it should be 
should contain more. It yeah, needs to be just not just the Scandinavian Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, expanded a bit further into AI. It's just Germanic-speaking area. So it's it grew it grew a lot uh, over the last couple of years, and um, and I'm I'm simply trying to uphold the well compare rather the um, the distribution of types of names compared to the newest genetic studies we have and compared to archaeological finds uh, anything that can tell us about migration movement um, and the the logical consequences of why a certain type of name is distributed in a particular way let's say it's common in much of Norway, but not in the East, but all of a sudden it's also uh, visible in the West of Sweden uh, or East of Sweden, maybe. Um, uh, maybe I could describe the age of some of the um, types of names by, uh, by looking at, well, whether they're present on the uh, isles or, let's see, not just the islands of the western, uh, well, the uh, the uh, expand area uh, of the Norse settlement in uh, Britain, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, even France. Uh, so whether an, a name type is present there could be an indication of its age. If it's not present, then it's well, the logical consequence would be either it's earlier or it's later than the Viking expansions. Um, all sorts of details about this. And a lot of this has been thoroughly studied by other people. But the very typical thing about our decentralized Scandinavian onomastics is that we tend to, or scholars have tended to look at their fields of interest, so or rather domain. So Swedes would look generally uh, on names distribution in Sweden, maybe even um, a particular area in Sweden, uh, but not look at the whole Germanic-speaking area as a whole. So mm. I've sort of um, taken it upon me to uh, to sum up the whole 200 years of uh, research done on the field in all sorts of name classes. That's that's so interesting though, because um, I was having this conversation just the other day with Joseph Hopkins, so from mimusbrunner.info, yep. you know, uh, and because uh, I think um, uh, he expressed kind of he was kind of puzzled that uh, he feels like the term Germanic itself is like almost never occurs when yeah. Scandinavian scholars are writing something, mm. uh, and it does seem like I mean. I thought about it a little bit. Usually, well, part of this is because, of course, it's just like Germanic is not necessarily part of the vocabulary of, of Scandinavian antiquarian studies. There's mm -hmm. an awareness, of course, that like, you know, uh, Proto-Norse and Old Norse is, you know, Germanic languages. Uh, there's is part of a Germanic kind of cultural sphere and things like that. But there are usually like other terms uh, to use this. And I think maybe a reluctancy towards like... Uh, you know, kind of giving in to kind of pan-Germanic ideas or something like that, and maybe also like locally stressing the idiosyncrasy of the Scandinavian material specifically. Um, but it struck me as something like that. This often means that 
Scandinavian academics, they're not always up to speed with uh, uh, antiquarian uh, studies in Germany and no. continental Germanic areas. No. This could be language barriers as well, you know, because a lot of that yes. scholarship is written in German. Uh, this kind of like a north-south divide almost between Scandinavia and Germany, where I would imagine that a lot of material kind of goes under the radar. Yes, uh, absolutely. And a good example of, uh, yeah, of a situation like that would be that there is, well, one types of names that uh, one type of names that is um, the Lev names, um, very common in Denmark. Um, names ending with Lev, some in Sweden names ending with Lev. They are etymologically quite apparently identical to um, uh, names ending with Leben in uh, Germany, uh, in a part of Germany that used to be the East German area. Uh, and of course, the cooperation between Scandinavian scholars uh, during the, uh, the uh, Cold War with the East German scholars were not great. Uh, there, uh, there were difficulties with getting information about place names because I, I suppose it was seen as strategically important um, geographical information. Well, that's, that's an interesting. That's an interesting aspect to it, like an yes. <laughs> intelligence aspect. Yeah. Of, uh, and of, and uh, of yeah. course, it's uh, the very fact that I particularly enjoy writing in my mother tongue, and and try to develop the uh, academic terminology in Norwegian. And I enjoy reading the same thing in Sweden, Swedish and Danish. But of course, for people who don't read or speak Scandinavian, it will be inaccessible. Uh, just as German literature will be inaccessible to, to people who don't read German. Um, and the same goes for Dutch uh, or French, for that matter. Um, so there's, there's the whole inner uh, conflict between should I write this in uh, in Norwegian because it's the right thing to do for my uh, my own country and my own language and uh, our uh, academic domain winning domain uh, or should I try to write it in another language to uh, make a bigger impact that's of course uh, a big issue in Norway these days as opposed to uh, finding the balance is it is difficult, but it's also important. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about it. Uh, I <laughs> with this whole Scandi futurism thing being presented uh, to to an English international audience. Uh, yeah. When uh, when probably if I was still home in Norway, I would just uh, uh, do it in Norwegian and talk to five people. Yeah. 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 Sure. Uh... It would be more than five people, but certainly uh, going English will help you a bit. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's just part of the of the walking anachronism that is uh, root Norse. So yeah, that's good. So um, yeah, there's going to be exciting um, exciting times forward for all of us. Um, you have stuff to look forward to. I have stuff to look forward to. Uh, and uh, I'm also going to apply for jobs. It's a tough world out there. 
I'm always thinking. I'm I'm always looking at uh, at you know those of you who who stuck with the uh, with the academic rat race and with uh, a certain degree of envy because it looks like you have these dream jobs, but it's really like it's a hard hustle just it's staying really afloat is. in that world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've I've been looking at my wife and she's been very successful, but it also comes with a price of uh, very high shoulders and levels of stress. Mm. So um, so I. Um, I'm not envious of uh, having to go through all that sort of, uh, yeah, the the uh, the competition and all the applications again and again and again and again. Um, I'm applying for jobs in, within the academic world, of course, but not exclusively. Well, uh, good luck uh, to you, and I hope you find uh, an institution that uh, that deserves. Someone of uh, of your caliber. I'm sure I will, and if I don't, I always have the kitchen garden. Christer is uh, is uh, significant uh, in uh, in part of the greater Scandi Futurist acculturation project because he was one of the people who really like took the term and made it his own, which is of course what I want people to do with this as well. Uh, to him, Scandi Futurism is all about picking berries, uh, making making juice, uh, growing uh, vegetables in your garden, and uh, you know. Enjoying, yeah. enjoying that deep heritage of cultivating the land that yeah. uh, that our ancestors uh, relished in. It's uh, very, very enjoyable. Do you have moles in Denmark? A lot of moles. I have so many moles you won't believe it. Uh, and in many ways, it's when when I first established my garden, it was quite handy because I had to fill my pots with soil, um, and usually. People go out in the shop and buy some compost there. I don't have to because the molds make so many holes uh, that I can just use that. But of course, it uh, it comes with the price of well, it looks looks as it does. I don't mind that, but you know, it's never ending. It's a uh, sort of a Sisyphus type of work. But molds aren't really the problem. Uh, the musigris is <laughs> the musigris. <the> <laughs> yeah, the the voles, the voles are the problem. So voles in 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 Danish, they're called uh, musigris, which means I guess bog pig or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. So the, I, the I can't get over pigs, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the bog pigs are they desecrated my um, almost all of my beetroots last year. Oh, those little fuckers. I had, yes. Okay, so voles, moles don't exist in our native Rogaland, but uh, but voles do. And my cat, uh, back at my parents' place, the cat caught one last summer. I'd never seen one with my own eyes, and was like cross between a mouse and a guinea pig. It like they look completely yeah. fucked up. It's big very heads odd. and yeah, 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 very strange creatures. They uh, they eat everything that is below the ground, so you can you have no warning at all because all the leaves can look perfectly well, and then try to pull your carrots, and then there's nothing there. Jesus, yeah, that's horrible. Well, at least the moles they eat like worms and stuff like that. Yes, yeah. I went to the UK for two weeks. Just came back last Sunday, and um, yeah, I was amazed by how many mole hills there were everywhere. Yeah, and I, yeah. I mean, people there hate them, I guess, but I was so <laughs> entranced by this animal. They are. I I don't mind moles at all. Uh, they are uh, very cool animals, cool looking, and I think 
if I'm not mistaken, they're a bit poisonous as well. So even yeah, they're related to shrews, I think. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So you don't want to get bit by them. Yeah, but they they uh, foxes don't care to eat them. Owls leave them alone, and and yeah, it's it's a very very beautiful and interesting little animal. But I've yeah. I've also heard that people get annoyed by and by the looks. I mean, I don't care about a few hundreds mole shoots in my garden uh, but I I can imagine for people who wants their lawn to be you know a perfect Victorian kind of lawn I can imagine they would bit be a bit annoyed yeah yeah I do like the etymology of 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 mole in Norwegian too <laughs> mole of like yeah. dirt flinger dirt yeah. tosser yeah. yeah mole wharf to finish off on that uh, that thing, uh, you know, I've been working with the you know the Norwegian grimoire stuff and uh, yeah. the black books and stuff like that. And there's a um, uh, there's a recipe in one of them for uh, powdered moles. So you oh. you you can how you you can burn moles into a powder, yeah. like burn them dry, and then you can crush them into a powder. Yeah. I don't think it says what you use the powder for, but <laughs> but the, it's possible to do it apparently. Yeah. And uh, there's a recipe for catching more moles to turn into powder. So you can set up like a, like a, like a, set up a production, you know? Oh, this is uh, just the, the type of stuff that I love reading through. Uh, yeah, it's and so it, it's it's very interesting too, because apparently if you put them in a pot, they will start, you know, they will scream. So if you dig a hole in the ground, put them in the pot, other moles will like come out from the sides and fall into the pot as well. Yeah. Um, and, and then you got, yeah, you got yourself a kind of an assembly line for mole powder. Uh, for whatever nefarious reason, but I always, I was, was very, I was puzzled by this because, of course, moles do not exist in Norway. So mm. maybe we turned them all into powder. I don't know. But, or uh, it, presume... it is a bit, it is a bit difficult for moles to dig in bedrock. Yeah, well, yeah, there's no soil for them to dig through. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I, I just presume the manuscript is originally Danish or translated from. Yeah, it would make sense. German or something like that. Yeah. There are moles in southern Sweden, so in theory they could have been. I'm not sure how far north they mm. go though. But I think. Uh, well, I think this manuscript is from like Lofoten or some shit like that. So yeah, that's okay. You know, out of impossible. the yeah. yeah. But the, yeah. a lot of ship traffic up there, so we know yeah. it could have traveled from. Get some mole powder. Yeah. Make people blind. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Like if we can turn ashes from. Mole ashes into to like a hair bleaching kind of thing or something. I don't know. Yeah. You can make turn lot turn into lye. <laughs> probably need a lot of moles to make yeah. to make that. Yeah. Would, would probably also more be uh, be more the uh, product of the wood you burned it with though. Probably yeah, but you don't use wood. That's the thing. You burn it in a pot without any. All right. Wood. So you yeah, just yeah. okay. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. I don't know. Terrible. Well, People I'll have were... to, I'll have to give this a spin maybe. Figure it out. Do some experimental archaeology. Yeah. I, that would be interesting. Okay. Well, now on this tangent, since we're all just talking nonsense anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave you be. I guess you have to pick up your, your kid, your kiddo from... But yeah, it was uh, lovely talking to you. And, Likewise. Um, uh, as I said, there are more things upcoming, so you might see if... Uh, yeah, your schedule is open, and yeah, we'll see you again soon, maybe. Yeah, wouldn't be, wouldn't be. Uh, I think the audience would enjoy this one. Yes, uh, I think so. I think so. All right. 
Okay, well, right. have a great weekend, Krister. You too. Yeah. And uh, say hello to your cat. Yes, I certainly will. And your wife. Uh, yeah, well. and say hello to Lorena as well. <laughs> I will, I will. Great, okay. Hey, Dora. Au revoir. Adam. That's it for this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and look forward to sharing more secrets with you in the future. If you want more Brute Norse, you're sure to find it in the links in the show notes. There you'll also find a link to my Big Cartel store where you can find my printed publications as well as some exclusive Brute Norse goodies that I've just released, including a pretty hot new tracksuit jacket, fully embroidered for the true cultists of the Scandi Futurist Power Walking Club. As always, stay strong, stay disciplined, and stay true to your area. Is anybody going to Michigan, or North or South Dakota? I'm selling gamelos door to door, but it's so hard to make my quota. I grew up on Gamalos, so did my mother and father. And now that I am growing old, I just can't stand the odor. Is anybody going to Michigan or North or South Dakota? I'm selling Gamalos door to door, but it's a Oh, Todd.